entrepreneurs, business owners, professionals who seek excellence, bringing the business classroom to you. It's the Business Builder Show. Here's Marty Wolf. We still got a long way to go. Yes, we all got a long way to go. Welcome to the Business Builder Show with Marty Wolf. The show for entrepreneurs, business owners, and business leaders. I'm Marty Wolf, your host for the Business Builder Show, and along with my executive producer, D.C. Taylor, we will be your guides on this learning journey. Let me tell you my super objective in being with you today. I want to enthusiastically share stories and information to inspire leaders so they can inspire others. I'm proud to let you know we record the Business Builder Show in the studios of 94.3 FM, The Talker, which is part of Bold Gold Media, and we are in Scranton, Pennsylvania. The Business Builder Show is distributed by C-Suite Radio. You can find our show and many other fine shows at c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Brian Dumain and Michael Useem is with me. Uh, welcome, gentlemen. Thank Great you, Marty. Okay, let me do a short introduction because uh, these folks have illustrious backgrounds, but allow me to do a short introduction. Brian Dumain is the founder and editor-in-chief of the New York media company High Water Press and a contributor to Fortune magazine, where for three decades he has held various writing and editing positions including Global Editor and Assistant Managing Editor. Michael Yusim is Director of the Center for Leadership and Change Management and the William and Jacqueline Egan Professor of Management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Together, these two gentlemen, along with Rodney Zimmel and Dennis Carey, have written a great book called Go Long, Why Long-Term Thinking is Your Best short-term strategy so welcome again to the business builder show let me start this way gentlemen and again there's just brian and michael so you can talk about your co-authors as we go through the through the discussion okay you can say nice things about your co-authors though all right we will be kind okay great all right so let me take something right out of the forward of your book and i'm going to say the title one more time it's go long why long-term thinking is your best short-term strategy. It says this, While the United States economy has no doubt benefited in this century from CEO founders like Jeff Bezos, who are able to focus on the longer term, the truth is that most public CEOs are not visionary founders. Rather, they are increasingly focused on next quarter's earnings. On the next page, it says this. Today, although although the number of companies in the United States is significantly higher than 20 years ago, the number of public companies is down by 50% from roughly 7,300 to 3,600. Number of public companies down by 50%. Brian, what's, what's up with that? Well, Marty, I think a lot of CEOs and their boards feel that if you're a public company, it's very hard to manage for the long term. You have pressures from activists who think they have a better way to run your company. Sometimes they do. 
uh, but often they don't. Uh, you have the pressure of quarterly earnings. You have to manage for those quarterly earnings. And when you do that, oftentimes you take your eye off of the long term. And if you don't have your eye on the long term, you're not going to be able to compete well uh, decades from now. In other words, you're just focusing on what's happening today, and therefore you might miss something on the horizon that could dramatically impact your business. I mean, Jeff Bezos, who you mentioned, uh, is a classic example of a CEO who looks to the long term. When most companies are looking quarterly or annually, maybe some of the best are looking out two years or three. He's looking out five years, seven years, eight years. He's looking around the corner. He's seeing what's uh, on the horizon. And he's able to set his strategy in a way that when the time comes, uh, he'll be in great shape. Yeah, uh, Brian, we'll stay with you for a second. Uh, Jeff Bezos paid no attention to earnings reports for the longest time. He was driving people crazy, wasn't he? He was absolutely driving people crazy, especially people on Wall Street. Yeah. But and what that did, though, is he, he had a story about the long term where he wanted to bring Amazon and make it the greatest online retailer in our history, which he has done. Yeah. And one of the things that that, has, uh, that accomplished for him was he got – access to incredibly cheap capital. Hmm. So, you know, because he didn't have to um, worry about his earnings, uh, people believed his story and he could just take their money through equity uh, and then invest it into the future. And it's really paid off. Whereas other companies aren't so lucky, maybe because their CEOs don't have a good story like Bezos. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then there are a lot who have just taken their companies uh, private because they want to do what Jeff Bezos is able to do, but they feel they can't, it's just too hard to do if you're a public company. Yeah. So, Michael, let's go to you. Um, so uh, I guess this is what this is saying is that people or companies or individuals who are growing these companies are kind of shying away, obviously, from becoming publicly traded companies. So I want you to go a little deeper on that, but also, and maybe that's a way to define what you uh, gentlemen call short-termism. So maybe that's a two-pronged question. I think they connect, Michael. Sure, and Marty, just to reference how Brian and our two authors got going on this, we, for the last couple of years, have run an annual program for new chief executive officers. Mm -hmm. uh, so they come to hear from some of the people who have done it and a bunch of academics as well. And Brian and I and our co-authors uh, were hearing almost recurrently, repeatedly, uh, concerns expressed by those now coming into the corner office that the short-term pressure is coming from equity analysts and these activist investors that press for fast change and it's kind of with a short-term agenda that uh, these issues have become more vexing, not less so. Mm. And so Brian and I began to kick around and our co-authors began to take a look at some of the data trends that are out there. And uh, just to pick up a couple to make the point, if you look at the average holding of stock on the New York Stock Exchange, it used to be about a five-year holding period, people would buy and hold for five years. Mm -hmm. Well, that would make uh, the uh, Procter & Gamble, where you might have the, that five-year investment, feel pretty good about being able to take five-year decisions. But today, the average holding period is less than a year. Wow. Meanwhile, activists have been building these huge war chests. If you go back 15 years, 
Uh, they only had a couple billion all told in all the different activist funds. Uh, but today is probably pushing $150 billion that they have at their disposal to press companies for, for stronger quarterly or maybe annual returns. Yeah. And then finally, the, I think that the uh, survey that really affected our thinking uh, a couple of years back, a big survey of C, what are called C-suite executives, people that are either CEO or chief financial officer or chief human resource officer, when they're asked what's up, among other things, a majority say that the pressure for short-term returns mm. in their own personal experience has really intensified in the last five years. Mm. Taking that all, we turned that upside down, and uh, Brian and I and our colleagues thus sought out uh, half a dozen executives who've defied those kinds of pressures, proving the point that you can do that. You can actually go for the long term. But we really wanted to display or, or describe or document how they do go for the long term in ways that others that are worried about becoming too short term can get an idea or two for themselves. This, um, this is difficult for those leaders. And I'm going to uh, mention again who my guests are. Brian Dumain, D-U-M-A-I-N-E. Brian is his first name. And Michael Usim, and Usim is spelled U-S-E-E-M, and he's with the Wharton School. Um Tell me a little bit about your uh, co-authors. Uh, who, uh, Brian, maybe back to you for that. Well, yeah. The great thing about this collaboration is that the four of us come from very different parts of the business world or the academic world. And we're, we're able to take our perspectives from uh, these different areas and combine them uh, in, in the book. So, for example, I'm a journalist. I've been a business journalist for 30 years. I've seen just about everything in terms of, of CEOs and strategy and mm -hmm. Wall Street and attacks on corporations. Mm -hmm. You know, Mike's one of the great leadership thinkers in the world, mm -hmm. and he knows what it takes to run a, a big organization. He brought that perspective in. Rodney Zemmel, uh, another co-author, is a managing partner in McKinsey. And he is just an amazing uh, analyst of business, and he understands what makes businesses tick and where the trends are uh, in business, where they're headed, what it takes to make a successful company. And then finally, Dennis Carey uh, has had years of experience. He's the vice chairman of Corn Ferry, which is one of the world's most prominent uh, headhunting firms. And, and Dennis just knows all the leaders of all the major corporations, not only in the United States, but overseas. And he was, you know, one of the early ones to pick up on this trend that these CEOs were indeed very worried about all the short term pressure. So you put those four perspectives together and I, I think it gives it sort of a the book, a unique take. It uh, absolutely does. And there's all kinds of praise for the book. And the book is, again, the title is Go Long. Why a long-term thinking is your best short-term strategy. Uh, you've talked about, as Michael uh, said earlier, you've talked about different companies, uh, Ford, CVS, Verizon, 3M. Maybe I'm missing a company. But the one that really grabbed at me, who I really like to spend some time on, is uh, Unilever. And, and at the head of that chapter, uh, he says this, you quote him as this, it says, our system, meaning Unilever, our system is there to satisfy a few billion people in the world, not just a few billionaires. 
So maybe back to you, Michael. Let's talk about Unilever and well, kind of what you talked about in the book. Give me, give me some information. Well, Unilever, I think many people appreciate, but not all, is one of the great uh, uh, consumer product makers of the world. It's right in there with Procter & Gamble, a more familiar name in this country. Unilever sells here, of course, and pretty much uh, uh, every country out there, just a whole range of consumer products. They've got 400 brands. Uh, they've got uh, over 2 billion customers every year. And Paul Pullman, as he came into office, he is thinking, you know, we sell what is not only something that people just need by way of uh, having soap suds for their washer and snacks after uh, school, but we sell just a, just a whole range of products that people get through life with, uh, serving meals and all kinds of consumer products in the home beyond that. And he said uh, his calling is to ensure that this company, Unilever, is providing products that people not only want, but uh, can be a benefit to their health, their, their longevity, less uh, less sugar, less fat in the food. Mm-hmm. And just as soon as you say it that way, given uh, just the way the consumer market works, if we put in some of the less tasty features into certain products we're selling, we're probably going to sell less of it of, of the given product. But over time, he, he had the view that the world should move towards more nutritious, more purposeful products um, at Unilever. Uh, lots of investors were saying that's going to lead to a short-term hit. You can't do that. And Paul plunged ahead and said, we are going to do it. He stopped um, offering up quarterly uh, forecasts of where they're going as a as a way to kind of insulate himself a bit for the, from those kinds of pressures. Mm-hmm. And, and, Marty, we see that out in a number of companies, but we detail it in the case here of Unilever. We see a person here who, it's, it's really, it's an act of leadership, has decided that the company ought to reach, <laughs> reach for the stars, go for the longer term, mm-hmm. is willing to take the short-term hit for that, but to get to the longer term, term, keep investors in, keep consumers happy. Um, And I'll turn this one back to Brian here. You really have to be able to explain that. You have to offer up what you might call the the strategy story. Mm -hmm. And if it's compelling, and Paul Pullman, is, we talk with him directly, he's got a very compelling account for why he's doing that. Yeah, Uh, It is true that uh, consumers, investment analysts, and and investors will, will hang in there if it's convincing. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Great description, Mike. And what I'd like to add to that is that over time, Unilever stock outperformed its peers because of what Pullman had been doing. Amen. He'd been reinvesting in the business. He'd yeah. been making healthier foods. He'd been uh, reducing energy usage because he's very concerned about climate change. And that, in the long run, made the company more profitable, more sustainable. This all came to a head. The story all came to a head in February of last year, uh, 2017, that is. And uh, Kraft Heinz, which is uh, partially owned by a Brazilian private equity fund called 3G, and also partially owned by Warren Buffett, uh, made a run at Unilever. Yeah. And they made a hostile uh, bid at about 20% of a premium over their current stock price. And what they wanted to do, Kraft Heinz was notorious for cost cutting. They just want to squeeze every cent out of a business because that's going to enrich shareholders today. Now, Pullman could have taken that 
deal with a 20 percent uh, premium, and he could have walked away from the company mm-hmm. an even richer man than he is today. Mm-hmm. But he knew that that deal was bad for Unilever, and he fought it in public. As Mike said, he had a good story about what he was doing, and he brought that to his uh, investors because some of his investors he knew were long-term shareholders and mm-hmm. cared about the long-term health of the of the company. Yeah. And then in the end, uh, Kraft Heinz uh, w- walked away. They couldn't. Uh, figure out how to beat Pullman. And now Pullman is still running the company. The company's still doing well. I mean, one of the crucial issues was that Pullman was, you know, Kraft Heinz was saying that Pullman was not cutting enough at Unilever. Yeah, yeah. Um, He was cutting a billion dollars a year, but he was putting that back into the company. He was reinvesting it in products and R&D and the Kraft Heinz people basically wanted to take that billion dollars and give it back to the investors. So short term versus long term. I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. That's right out of your book is what what he said, what Paul Pullman said. Our system is there to satisfy a few billion people in the world, not a few billionaires. So he took that long term view. Uh, again, my guests are Michael Useem and Brian Dumain. Their great book is Go Long, Why Long-Term Thinking is Your Best Short-Term Strategy. Now, throughout the book, gentlemen, um, directly or indirectly, we are talking about millennials and how they are impacting kind of what's happening. You call it the triple bottom line. You can call it ESG. You can call it those kinds of things. But uh, maybe back to you, Michael. Um, how are millennials impacting the way companies, I guess, think about the things that you're talking about? You know, Marty, I, th- I think the millennial thinking on many issues, sustainability, one of those that Brian alluded to along the way, uh, it, it's it's very strong in uh, – it's, it's a strongly held belief that we need a more sustainable world, a safer world. Uh, a better world among that generation. But that, that's a view that's actually widely shared, we know, from any number of surveys. Yeah. And it's a it, there's a trend line here, and that is people now are saying they want to buy from companies that do protect uh, the environment. They want to buy from companies that right. have a, a, a broader purpose to it. Yeah. And for us, the, the A case, this really uh, kind of just helped nail some of these um, trends down, and certainly in our thinking, is that of... CVS, yeah. the chief executive then, still there, a guy named Larry Merlo, right. a couple of years ago decided that if CVS is going in the direction of, of, of serving as a, as a health center for communities, you can buy prescription drugs, you can buy over-the-counter products for your health, it seems a little bit uh, inappropriate to have a lot of tobacco right behind the cash register mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for customers as they're walking out. So after a lot of internal discussion, this this was not an easy decision, Larry Merlo, chief executive with the backing of the board, decided to take tobacco out of all 7,600 stores. It resulted short-term in something north of a $2 billion loss. Uh, the company's stock price short-term dropped um, by something like 7 or 8% uh, the day he announced that he was withdrawing tobacco. That said, though, uh, isn't that the kind of story that millennials and just about um, everybody would like to walk into if they're concerned about health? Absolutely. And uh, they don't want to see anti-health products um, on the shelf. Larry Merlo was uh, prepared to 
take the hit. He did take a hit. Company share price uh, plummeted. Having said that, though, uh, CVS now has successfully branded itself in part because of this yeah. as a health-focused store. They're in the process of trying to merge with uh, Aetna, the big health insurance company. That would have probably not been feasible or even <laughs> couldn't even think about that right. if they were still selling tobacco. So for us, it's a pretty good example. Short-term, Great short-term example. losses, yes, but long-term gain, large. Yeah. Uh, you know, a gentleman... These are courageous moves on these folks. This is, uh, you know what? This takes a lot of faith, courage, whatever word you want to use. I mean, I, if I can use it, I'm just going to use the word. This is ballsy. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, let's just throw it out there. Okay, so, Brian, back to you. Um, so, um, and you address this in your book, and it's it's all connected, what we're talking about. So, so let's talk about how can short-term thinking affect – R&D and innovation, how does that affect it? And what's kind of the, let's give more of a story to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that's a great question, Marty. So what typically happens in a large corporation under short-term pressure is they cut costs. And one of the easiest places to cut costs is in R&D and in innovation. That's partially because the average tenure for CEOs these days has gotten a lot shorter. It's down to five or six years. Mm. So the the impact from cutting R&D isn't likely to be felt during the CEO's tenure. So he can just wander off into the sunset with his uh, golden parachute and yeah. it's the next guy's or yeah. the next woman's yeah. problem. Right. So one of the, the great examples of this that we talk about in the book is uh, 3M. And, yeah. you yeah. know, 3M was always known for its innovation. You know, they gave us you know, scotch tape, post-it notes, it, uh, just hundreds and hundreds of different products. And uh, a while back, they were going on, you know, they were going under a tough time and uh, their earnings were pretty much stalled. I mean, they're growing, but the, the company wasn't really that uh, vibrant. Wall Street was breathing down the next board and the CEO. And a new CEO, uh, George Buckley, came in, mm-hmm. and he decided that innovation and long-term thinking is really the only way to run this company. But he still realized that you have to pay attention to the short term at the same time. So what he did is he, he found ways to cut other than R&D. Brilliant. So yep. he, he, yep. went, he, he realized that his uh, logistics system and his manufacturing was very inefficient. Uh, a single product at 3M could be made in several or eight different locations around the world. So they kept shipping parts and products here and there. And he streamlined that. And he unleashed hundreds of millions of dollars of capital. And he gave a little bit back to his investors to keep them happy, but invested a a large chunk of it back into R&D. And before you knew it, 3M started pumping out Yep. Uh, new product after new product, and the stock uh, reflected that success. And so, 
Yeah. That, 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 that was the key there. And those new products meant a lot to 3M, as it means a lot to a lot of companies. Uh, I need to start wrapping up, but uh, just as kind of as a comment, you do talk about Ford and Alan Mulally. It's going to be interesting what happens with Ford going forward, because they made some interesting announcement recently in terms of, uh, I guess, they're reducing the number of sedans they're going to produce or sell in the United States. Gentlemen, I'm sure you're going to be paying attention to that, huh? Uh, we are. And, Marty, back to the word you used just to get to that point uh, a little bit uh, indirectly, the word courage, I think, is <laughs> yeah. uh, perfectly descriptive of what the people that we've been describing have been doing. It's, it takes personal fortitude, oh, determination, grit, and courage to get through these agendas. Yep. Uh, because short term, uh, people are critical of you. Your stock price is dropping. And that yeah. was Alan Mulally's stories. He came into Ford just before the crisis, the 0809 crisis. He came in 06. Uh, Ford was heading off a cliff. Uh, its shares were down to less than $10 a piece. It was going to lose um, uh, something like $17 billion uh, uh, the year after he got there. Mm-hmm. And it was a courageous uh, move to begin with for him to take the job. But as he came in, again, this is one of our eight cases, just such a wonderful, exemplary experience, as we describe it there in the book, as, as, as he took charge and uh, pushed the company to cut costs, to think more long term, to um, ensure that the company was uh, viable. And for all that to come together, he said, what we're doing has to benefit everybody, everybody. consumers, yep. of course, but Wall Street, yes, yes, uh, employees as well, yes, and that's again a kind of one of those underlying themes that seems to tra- kind of transcend all these enterprising, courageous CEOs is they really want everybody to benefit, if, even if in the short term uh, people take some hits. And then last point, Marty, just to wrap that one up. Uh, it's such a reminder, too, Ford's got its own new set of problems. Yeah. <laughs> and Alan Mulally's successor is dealing with a couple of really big ones now. Yeah. Yeah. Which there was a uh, a simple solution <laughs> long term, but that, that, that's the job of people who run these things is to yeah. take it to the next stage uh, as they do take over. Well, um, I'll be looking for uh, both of you writing on Ford and uh, and the other things that you're going to do a follow-up to this great book. Again, the title is Go Long, Why Long-Term Thinking is Your Best Short-Term Strategy. My guests have been Michael Useem, and he is with the Wharton School, and Brian Dumain, I guess, with Fortune Magazine. So, uh, Brian, uh, anything that, again, we can't cover everything in a short interview, but anything that you want to make sure we get out, and then we'll bounce over to, to Michael. I think what I'd like to leave your listeners with is the idea that for all we talked about activists and short-term investors, the big trend that's emerging out there is that there's a group of long-term investors Mm -hmm. who are stepping up to the plate Mm -hmm. and wanting CEOs and boards to manage for the long-term. We we quote uh, BlackRock CEO Larry Think right. in the book, BlackRock right. manages, I think, $6 trillion in assets. Mm-hmm. And we quote Bill McNabb of Vanguard. He manages, uh, I think, another $5 trillion in, in assets. And these investment companies, uh, because they, they're large uh, holders of index funds, uh, have to invest in every stock. They can't pick and choose. They can't go in and out of stocks. They want their stocks to do well today, yes, but they want their stocks to do well three, five, ten years from now. So 
they're actually starting to hire people who to take uh, boards and CEOs to task who are not managing for the long term. Yeah, I've been watching that. I've been watching yeah. that. Interesting, interesting. Again, courageous on, on his on their part, you know, to do that. Uh, Michael, you have the last word. What uh, What would you like to add? Yeah, Marty. Just to sum up, uh, and coming back to BlackRock, and there's a bank called State Street that invests large amounts of funds as well. Vanguard, Fidelity, some of the great state pension funds. They're all in the business of investing for the long term. That's what they do. Uh, think about pensioners in California or the state of New York. They want their pensions 20 years out to be strong. Mm. And thus, the allies for people that we've re- referred to, Alan Mulally, uh, George Buckley at 3M, Alan Merlo, a woman named Maggie Wilderotter that we write about as well, mm-hmm. the natural allies are out there for the exercise of their own courage and the the agenda of our book in particular is to encourage that courage by offering up uh, detailed examples about uh, around how others, those I've just named and Brian has named, how they've done it in their doing that, in their courageous acts of thinking long term. Uh, their short term strategy is is indeed has paid off for the long term. And I think that's where we want business to go. Great book, gentlemen. The title, again, is Go Long. Why Long-Term Thinking is Your Best Short-Term Strategy. Michael Yusin, Brian Dumain, thank you so much for being a guest on the Business Builders Show. Thank Thank you, you. Marty. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Business Builders Show with Marty Wolf. Reminding you to find our show and many other great shows on C-Suite Radio. That's c-suiteradio.com. On behalf of myself, Marty Wolf, your host, and D.C. Taylor, my executive producer, thank you for listening to the Business Builder Show, but stay tuned for information on how you can become part of the C-Suite Network. Bringing the business classroom to you, it's the Business Builder Show with Marty Wolf. As a loyal fan of this C-Suite radio show, we've got an unbelievable offer for you. Listeners to the Business Builder Show get 50% off a C-Suite Network membership. The C-Suite Network will help you become the most strategic person in the room. You'll have access to top-notch benefits and networking, all helping you get the most out of your position. Take advantage of this limited-time offer today. Learn more about the C-Suite Network membership at c-suitenetwork.com slash CSR. Again, that's 50% off a C-Suite Network membership at c-suitenetwork.com slash CSR.